This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, Sir Christopher Gilbert is live from Tokyo for the International Dispatch. He brings us amazing stories from around the world, including the failing of Domino's Pizza in Italy and why cats love it when you hate them. Dr. Yevgenia Gaber, Ukrainian foreign policy expert at Carleton University, gives us a crucial update on Ukraine and the Black Sea, what's going on there. She explains how Western weapons have helped Ukraine at the bargaining table with Russia as well. Are you okay with excavators? Who doesn't love real-life Tonka trucks? And how about beer? All of this and more on the Shift Daily Podcast. Hey, let's go international and the dispatch with Chris. Welcome to the International Dispatch from our world citizen. Live from Japan, New Zealand's Chris Gilbert. Chris, have you met Derek, the uh, famous character from Heartland? Uh, episode, uh, season 8, episode 14? Yeah, I'm Googling him right now. I'm a little bit scared about what I'm going to find. Maybe I should go in incognito mode on my browser, just in case. <laughs> just in case. I don't, I don't know what Ryan's been up to. Riders on the Storm is the 14th episode of Season 8 of Heartland. Mm-hmm. It aired March 1st, 20... Ryan, you didn't tell me you were famous. I know. My my one credit on IMDb puts me up in the echelons of film. You know, Marlon Brando, like, look out. I'm coming after you. So 20, mm-hmm. 2015, that effectively makes you a child star, right? Yeah, I was fresh out of <laughs> so high like, school. Like, what, five, yeah, six I years old? I had just... Then? I had just turned 18 when we filmed it, so I was able to um, get a better rate. Or actually, was it right before? I have to go back and check. I'm sorry if we're Uh, rehashing um, well-trodden ground for the audience, but I must know, like, how significant your part was. How many? Well, first of all, he's on the IMDb for this. He is in the top cast category of the episode. Goodness. Just so you know. I'm in the top cast? I didn't know that. Oh, Mm -hmm. nice. (laughs) i i was in it for maybe like five minutes i had i think 15 or so lines i just played like a like a snobby rich kid who tried to learn how to be a cowboy it was fun it was lots of fun semi-autobiographical yeah i did yeah we've already made that joke don't worry (laughs) (laughs) i said he was typecast but the point is really the same yeah i think think, um i think i'm the only new zealander who both um, was not in Lord of the Rings personally, uh, nor knows anybody who was in Lord of the Rings. The joke is that like everybody in New Zealand knows somebody who was in Lord of the Rings, and I'm neither of those. I'm so far removed from those things, but you know, and and proud of it too. To be honest, I'm not famous. I'm not in Lord of the Rings, and um, but I, I am very humbled and honored to be to be in the company of um, so many celebrities and, and on one overnight radio show. Derek. All right, the International Dispatch, I know it's going to be hard to take away from the distraction of Derek's presence here on the program, yeah. but let's, um, let's. Uh, you know what our top hour starter IDs are going to be tomorrow, right? Like, totally. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I can't wait. Okay, uh, let's just uh, continue here. It's hard to move on, but we will do so. So Christopher Gilbert joins us from Tokyo, Japan, with the International Dispatch. Where do you want to start? We should probably start where you are on your storytelling today. You know, I'm just thinking that of all the adopted monikers to fall into, Derek is probably the worst one. That's you it. know, like, like I'm Sir Christopher. I'm sorry, like I just I have to get it out of my system. But like, I'm Sir Christopher <laughs> Gilbert on the show, a name that was kind of thrust upon me 
Um, mm. You know, and now I, Ryan, you got to be Derek, mate. You got to be okay. Anyway, I don't, I don't uh, Derek. Japan. No man, like J- Japan. Uh, apologies to all the Dereks out there. I'm sure you're lovely people. Uh, Japan, um, <laughs> the well-trodden story. Uh, we've talked about it many times. Well, I've talked about it many times in the show. I'm not sure who was saying about the guy in Yamaguchi who uh, accidentally inherited his whole town's COVID relief money. Mm, uh, I remember uh, that guy. Uh, yeah, Abu Town, um, population three thousand three hundred. Um, he got about maybe like. Four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars Canadian because um, oh, you know the bank messed up. The Excel spreadsheet wasn't formatted correctly. There was a floppy disk involved. It was all rather messy. It goes on that like that guy promised he not to run with the money, and then he immediately ran with the money and blew it all on online casinos, um, which are not exactly above boards here in Japan. They're kind of like like not so not so legal. And so the cops managed to arrest him on a on a um, on a fraudulent use of a computer charge. Um, the town got the money back through some clever lawyering. And today I bring this up because our story has come full circle for people who are following this over the weeks. Um, well, I don't know if it's full circle. It's kind of zigzagged and squiggled and swirled around and ended up in the ocean. Um, but it's finished. Uh, the guy's name who did this is Shotaguchi, and on August 1st, he was released on bail uh, from the prison in which he was being kept because he fraudulently used a computer. And you might be wondering, well, you know, how could such a disreputable figure be released on, you know, bail? Like, how, how, how could anyone afford this for him? And, you know, and you could also think, like, well, how is he going to pay it back? How is he going to get a job? Um, the answer to all of these questions that you're so dying to know is Hikaru. Hikaru, Shane. Hikaru is uh, a self-made millionaire. He's a YouTuber. He's about the uh, same age as Ryan. Uh, he is a Gen... Sorry, Derek. And he's a Gen Z Robin Hood. Hikaru is a guy. He used to be employed uh, at a factory and then he got uh, slammed by his boss for something. They call it in Jap- Japanese pawahara, which means power harassment. Um, which, by the way, there's all kinds of things for the hara. Like if you're a bit smelly, it can be like smeru hara. If you're a bit noisy, it's a noise hara. So many haras, so many harassments in the Japanese workplace. But this guy, Hikaru, he's like, screw this, quits his job. And then he uh, goes on to... Uh, like do those information secrets say like i can make you rich if you i you know you buy the secret from me schemes things and then he makes a lot of money with that but finds it very unethical and so he ditches that job um and then he just uses his made millions to um be a youtuber and um he uses his youtube channel to um kind of like expose fraudulent business practices so kind of you know like a, kind of an interesting guy, you know, but the guy probably looked at this poor dude, Taguchi, who had blown all the COVID relief money on online casinos, seen him as a tragic figure who made some wrong decisions, and is like, you know what? I'm going to bail this guy out. Um, so immediately as Taguchi walked out of jail, he walked right into a waking car, uh, well, sorry, a waiting car, and uh, inside was Hikaru, you know, fabulous Hikaru. And uh, he whisks him off to the Hikaru factory or wherever he keeps his employees at his YouTube <laughs> channel. And 
now he's he's fixed him up with a job um takuchi the guy who got the covid money he's you know like um uh being trained in business etiquette he's being trained in you know all kinds of softwares and such um he could have set him up with a very unsuccessful twitter account where takuchi mostly uses it to just post videos of him learning how to use microsoft word but of all the twists and turns over the story i did not expect a YouTuber to bail this guy out and give him a job. And uh, you know what? Personally, you don't get many second chances in life, especially when you've been dragged through the mud in the news, especially when that involves taxpayer money. You know, and considering um, the massive hole that this guy was facing uh, for the rest of his life, um, this is extremely, I might I say, happy ending for everybody. Shane, good for him. Good for him. And the money comes back, and he's got new friends now. This is... uh... This has worked out. Oh, um, that's it. There's, there's no twist. There's no like, there's no cynicism. There's no sarcasm. There's no you know Chris scorns at the story. It's all's well that ends well, and a very like mm. uh, I don't know good news. He's still doing good news Tuesday. There's, yeah, of course we are. Tuesday. Yeah, there's good news. It is good news Tuesday. Tuesday. Yeah. Uh, here on the shift, Chris, people have been trying to talk me into liking cats. Now you know yeah. full well my opinion about that, and the. Um, a totally a dog guy, and the you know with your imaginary cat, Potato Chip Gilbert, Potato Chip Gilbert, yeah, you have to understand that um, you know you are a cat person, so maybe you can help us a little personal story here about about the kitty cats. Yeah, I mean, I mean, don't forget that um, I've also gone on many angry tirades against Mittens, the celebrity cat of Wellington. Um, that got the keys to the city and, yeah, and was on the calendar of the year shortlist. Yeah. Um, I think people remember that. Um, look, this isn't really news, but like I, I saw the headline and I had to talk about it because uh, a texter last week also mentioned my hatred of, of feline animals. And uh, the headline is, so you hate cats? It turns out they like that. Um, you know, treat, treat the kitties mean, keep the kitties king. Um, cats apparently, according to the Sydney Morning Herald, love people who hate them uh, because their reluctance of the, the person's reluctance to stroke and fuss over the cat. Um, this is the first. You know, I'm just going to read the sentence. Cats love people who hate them because their reluctance to stroke and fuss gives the feline the control and independence it needs. A study has found what cats want. In contrast, quote, cat people who claim to be knowledgeable and experienced with cats are more likely to restrain the animal and touch areas they don't like. Um, cats, in contrast to most dogs, can be prickly and seem aloof, as we know. You know, I often feel there's a real vibe thing going on. I feel like when I meet a cat, the cat knows that I'm kind of awkward around cats as a dog person myself, and I'm not really sure what to do, and the cat does, the cat backs off. Um, most dogs shower any human in affection. Cats are harder to please. Apparently, Cats have red areas where they hate to be touched. Mm. Uh, I, I will tell you what they are, but just to check how cat-wise everybody is, I would like to hear what you think the red areas of a cat, the no-touch areas, the no-pet of, of, the, of the cat is. What do you think, Shane? Okay, so the uh, the cheeks and the chin, obviously, yes. Um, the belly, ugh. I mean, they love it when you scratch their butts. They always stand on their tippy toes. Um, so I don't, I mean, they hate their paws. Um, they typically like it when you get like right between the eyes. 
Okay. Um, All right. Cats don't like their ears being touched. I mean, that's that's pretty much it. Derek, what do you reckon? The 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 red areas of a cat, uh, the no, <laughs> the no fly zones. I want to respond. I would say, yeah, belly for sure, uh, and um, probably like their like their neck. You know, like yeah, I'd say their neck. You know, because I know a lot okay. of cats like the the butt scratches. So yeah. Jonathan Chung, no touch zones, kitty cats. Um, I would say. Uh, like their thighs, their thighs. Yeah. I, you know, I had never once imagined that a cat has a thigh, but I guess they do. Cats must have thighs. <laughs> I've never thigh. thought about a cat. Yeah, interesting. Ah, well, um, I will tell you that cats hate to be touched at the base of their tail, which I guess is what their butt. They hate being touched immediately around the tail, and uh, you're all right. Their stomach can't touch the stomach of the kitty cat um mm. which is why like at one time i was at my friend's house and i picked up his cat ron and i did the whole uh, ufo crane game like the whole two hand scoop and catch you know and I, I just grabbed it one hand on each side and picked it up which of course your fingers are touching its tummy and my friend was like you really don't know how to handle cats do you so the tummy is a no-go zone and the base of tail is no-go zone green areas are gland rich regions at the base of the ears, so at the bottom of the ear and under the chin. And you think about a happy cat, picture a happy cat in your head that's being patted by a human. Where's the human patting it in your mind? Probably base of the ears and under the chin. Uh, so this True. is a new study published in the scientific report. I don't know if it's a good journal or not, but I found out that cat people, people who think they're good with cats, are more likely to touch the red areas making the animal feel uncomfortable and increasing animosity uh, from the cat. So there you go. My hatred of cats actually um, enamors me to them. They, they, they can feel the resentment and they're like, you know what? This guy will probably touch my green areas, but not my red areas. That's what they're thinking. Uh, yeah, that somehow seems really weird. All of it. Um, it's a scientific study, Shane. Um, yeah. from, well, hey, man, from, I guess cats have no-no zones, too. Yeah, for petting. Yeah, and um, I, I don't know. I think cats are weird alien creatures that make no sense. You know, I just think they're tiny little tigers and lions in your house. And um, I feel like they should never have been domesticated, to be perfectly honest. Um, I don't really respect them as an animal. Oh, my God, I'm getting very <laughs> controversial here. But I do think I don't they're respect cute. them as an animal. <laughs> Get a job. Um, oh. oh boy. Yeah. Speaking of jobs, All right. well, business. Speaking of it's business, it's the shift.ca. If you want to send an email uh, that I'll forward to Chris of you sharing your thoughts of all of that. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever that was. Okay. Yeah. Let's go on a tour of, uh, let's go on a quick tour of the world, Chris. We've got a couple of minutes, so let's get on some of these stories. I like your Italy. Well, I like them all. Uh, Italy yeah, story Italy's maybe good. first. So let's take us yeah. on a tour of the world. Yeah. Italy is good. Um, Italy, uh, Domino's Pizza has failed uh, in Italy. Uh, that's the story. Um, Domino's Pizza thought it was a good idea in 2015 uh, to, uh, you know, set up a shop in Italy. Um, they, they partnered up with a franchise called E Pizza Spa. That's a little E in front of a capital P pizza, then SPA. It's very random. 
Uh, they opened the first Domino's in Milan in 2015, announcing that we're going where no major pizza brand has gone before, Italy. <laughs> like, um, E-Pizza would go on to open 28 more Domino's outlets throughout the country. They had planned to open hundreds more. And then guess what? Womp, womp. It didn't quite work out. Um, they thought that the blending of American know-how and food delivery and Italian expertise and a cherished national dish may have, you know, kind of worked, but it didn't because guess what? There's already quite a lot of pizza in Italy. You know, there's already... It's good. Like, I remember... Yeah, like very good pizza too, you know, like, and it's everywhere. And so it's kind of... I, I come from Wellington, New Zealand, which um, likes to say it has more cafes per capita than any other city in the Southern Hemisphere or something like that, right? But like the flat white, you might know the coffee, the flat white or the long black is a type of coffee was invented in Wellington, New Zealand. So, like, very good coffee in Wellington. And it's the one city that I've been to where Starbucks failed. They tried, they said about four or five Starbucks in Wellington. They all went out of business within about 10 years because the coffee is so good in Wellington. Seems like the same thing has happened to Domino's Pizza in, uh, in Italy. Uh, they promised to use 100% tomato sauce and mozzarella, but apparently they didn't really win people over because I think, you know, people... Mama is in the kitchen using the tomatoes from, you know, the, the tomato tree that Grandpappy, you know, planted 80 years ago. And the mozzarella is milked fresh from the cow and stuff, you know. So it's, it's like, it's, it's tomato all Tomato trees and mozzarella from cows. Mozzarella okay. cows. Yeah. All right. Um, okay, let's go to, um, let's go to the India story. I like the India story, too. Uh, this is... Oh, do you? Um, I, I'm going to be perfectly honest with the India story. I didn't read it before I pitched it. Um, oh, good. I saw I saw the headline and then I read it and I was like, oh, that's a bit sad. But the headline is snakebite victim's brother visits village for funeral and then gets bitten and killed by a snake while going to the snakebite funeral. Um, a man who had come to attend the last rites of his brother um, who died of a snakebite was killed after being bitten by a snake in his sleep, police said on Thursday. Uh, his name is uh, Gavin Mishara. He attended the last rites of his brother, um, Arvin Mishara, who was 38, 38 and 22, um, held in a village on Wednesday. Um, and then uh, the, the quote from the cops here is that uh, he was killed after being bitten by a snake in his sleep. Um, and uh, it might even be the same snake he was rushed to hospital where his condition where he was uh, critical and then passed away um mate i i just i gotta tell you like that is horrific either horrifically bad luck or that town has a snake problem they really should have known about before this event or the whole country has a snake problem that's been way too normalized and i don't think i want to go to india anymore <laughs> I always, that's very scary. I always wanted to go to India, but not anymore. And that's yeah, that's concerning. All right, it's the International Dispatch, Sir Christopher Gilbert. We've got time for the last one here, Chris. As we tour around the world, how about Malaysia? Uh, this story just confuses me. Uh, man finds out he's dead while lodging a police report. Um, as the headline, and this story is extremely confusing because it's just it's every time you think it's 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 very straightforward. It just turns another corner, kind of. A 71-year-old man in Johor in Malaysia found out he'd been listed as a dead man after attempting to lodge a police report. Okay, sure. 
Um, the man who apparently is dead is actually a hearse driver. He's, he drives a hearse, the dead man. Unforgivable. And the reason he was trying to lodge a report was because he had lost a deed to a gravesite that he had bought. Oh, that's weird. This is so weird. He and his wife had purchased a two-person gravesite about 20 years ago. He wanted to transfer the deed to a relative because he wanted to be cremated instead of buried for financial reasons. In January, in January he realized he'd lost the deed, which forced him to lodge a police report. However, he failed to file the report since he was already deemed clinically, well, not clinically, sorry, sorry um, legally dead. Um, I, I have so many questions about this. Like, how did he end up being legally dead? It doesn't explain. It just goes about into all the details about how he couldn't pay his road tax and stuff because he was legally dead. Um, he said, I've been working at a funeral home for so many years, but I never thought that I would be dead myself. If it doesn't get updated, I'm worried that my bank account and assets will get frozen. But the man drives a hearse. And he wanted to change the deed that he lost to his own gravesite. It turns out he can't because he's dead. And well, I, I, there's not a good know. sign in this whole story. Like it's all bad news. Yeah, and I, I, I think I have to like, I think I want to investigate this more because I've got so many. How did he end up? I, I don't know. I just, it's too confusing for me. Um, as he said, he's been classified as dead for a while. He was unable to cast his ballot in the local elections, leaving um him ruining his failure to fulfill his responsibility as a Malaysian. Uh, his daughter had tried to check his voter status online, which listed him as having no records. It doesn't actually say how he was thought to be dead. Um, no, he died or, or didn't win. Yeah, very strange. Maybe somebody just saw his name at a funeral home and was like, oh, that's a dead guy. I, uh, and I don't know, maybe it's something to do with his deed for his gravesite going missing. I have no idea. It's bizarre to me. Uh, all of it, actually. We were started at Bazaar back there with a uh, cat glance. So uh, thank you for being here, Sir Christopher Gilbert, and uh, Tokyo, yeah, Japan with the International Dispatch. Thanks, pal. Great to see you. And we covered a lot today. I feel like it was very productive and good to see you. Oh, yeah, nice to see you guys as I do every week. I'll see you next week. Wonderful. Enjoy watching Derek on Heartland. Oh, yeah, I'm going to be all over that once I get off the air. <laughs> <laughs> This is The Shift Podcast. Here in The Shift, we continue to go to Ukraine and find out what is um, what is uh, happening over there. There's been some new news, although we are lucky as we have one of uh, Ukraine's finest here in our country working in Ottawa for the summer, doing some teaching and everything else. Uh, Evgenia Gaber, PhD. I don't, like, I don't even know how to describe you and your colleagues anymore um, because the... I mean, in the beginning, I learned that you guys did lots of, you know, geopolitical studies focused on pockets of the world, what's happening, economics, politics, all of this stuff. And then I watched a, um, a presentation um, from Jonathan Berkshire Miller last week. He had a, a, a webinar with some folks from Japan and Singapore sort of on the, the Pacific Rim uh, Indo-Pacific region and the impact of all things Ukraine on that. And then I, I'm watching this dialogue and I'm just, I'm like, oh, we have no idea what really goes on in the background, what you guys do. So I get constantly more and more impressed. Evgenia, thanks for being here. 
Yeah, thank you for the invitation. And tomorrow I'm happy to have Jonathan talking to my class in Carlton University to oh, really? students about Black Sea and in the Pacific Connection. <laughs> oh, amazing. So make sure you tell Jonathan Shane says hi because uh, he's, he's such a neat guy. Um, so smart. He is. Ah, very good. Okay, well, then why don't we start there? Why don't we start with, um, okay, so you're from Odessa, you are Ukrainian, you've been doing most of your work in Turkey and in Istanbul, except for in the summer pocket of teaching. So what what does, in your career, your line of work, I mean, aside from the fact that your expertise is centered in and around the Black Sea and all of that, um, what do you go teach to and who do you teach it to? Is it just normal students that want to learn politics or is it people that are focused on Ukraine and what's going on in that pocket of Europe? Well, you know, it's so interesting because I have uh, very smart people in my class and I'm so happy to have all of them there. So since I'm teaching MA course, I also have not only BA students, but uh, some professionals who have been working in different ministries as advisors, even to uh, ministers, to some uh, state agencies here. But those people uh, want to know more about the Black Sea and the region. And that's amazing because someone who would be doing healthcare on a regular basis right or someone who would be in a law enforcement agency and then just because they are taking courses in political science and they know what is going on uh, in Ukraine, in Russia, and in the Black Sea, they would like to have some insights about what the region is. So my uh, message from the very first class was if you want to know more about the region and about the dynamics in the region, this is the very time to do so. Because obviously it's not only about Ukraine, Russia, Turkey, or something else. It's about this Indo-Pacific connection. It's about Russia's recent naval doctrine, which is way too much paying attention to the Arctics and how it's going to redraw borders there and how it's going to deal with China and Canada and the U.S. there. It's all about that because it's so interconnected. And I would say that this is now the epicenter of the European and transatlantic security. So it's really interesting how my personal background, being born in Ukraine, doing Turkey as part of my portfolio, having relatives in Russia, and then coming to Canada to teach a Black Sea security course is now all there mixed. And that is how I can take it to another level and just talk to different people here and get their feedback on how they see uh, regional dynamics and development. So it's really interesting, this multicultural and interdisciplinary approach. It's amazing how it's, it all comes together. And, and it doesn't escape me um, the level of things that you... Uh, experience, learn, and do through the course of your career plus your education. So you have, you know, your bachelor students, master students, all those people. What kind of jobs do they go do? Do they do that advisory to politicians and to governments? Do they just get into economics for corporate business that are looking to do business in the region? What what kind of jobs are these people trying to chase after they're done? Well, I think most of them are at the early stages of their careers. So we would also have these nice chats about which path they would uh, take in the future. Uh, someone would decide whether he or she would like to be in diplomacy, uh, doing some professional stuff there, working for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs or um, Global Canada. Someone would just be a journalist covering all this international affairs stuff and trying to get a grasp of what is going on there. So it's being journalist commentator, but also 
have a background in international affairs and political science. And someone, as I mentioned, would just be working for Ministry of Interior or Ministry of uh, Health or Education or some other kind of irrelevant ministries. But in the end, you again end up in doing some uh, humanitarian stuff, uh, some uh, soft security because it's also about human security and even someone working for the Minister of Agriculture would be very interested in hearing about food security and how grain supplies uh, happen or not happen now. So it's so, as you put it, it's so interconnected now that many uh, people from different fields not necessarily focusing on political science would be really interested in doing uh, foresight analysis and trying to have those scenarios for the future, uh, what might be the further implications for different areas, keep it in mind just to be really well fit into their uh, fields of expertise. Well, I can hear it. You can hear it. Uh, agriculture is such a great example, simple example to understand. I mean, if you're a bank looking to do um, some investment in the region or in shipping through the area, uh, you would need to hire someone that can advise on what's going on there. I mean, even something as simple as getting a loan to buy a boat to ship the grain. I mean, you need that kind of stuff. I had no idea. So this is, fa I, this is how lucky I feel that, I mean, I get this education uh, from all of you um, and I don't even have to go to school or write any papers. So it's good. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's great. And that's why I'm trying to keep my uh, classes there also interactive and different. So it's not all about lectures. I hate lectures. I actually yeah. ask people to make some uh, presentations and to present their views uh, within the same uh, scope of Black Sea security. But we have so many different things and topics to discuss, starting from uh, sexual and gender based violence as part of psychological and hybrid warfare on the ground because someone would be really interested in gender issues and going as far as to dealing with infectious diseases in the occupied territories of Ukraine, because this is also a huge thing. Not many people think of that, but when you do not have water supplies and then when you can not even have uh, the bodies of the dead people buried in a proper way and you would have all those infections there and no health care because Russians are particularly hitting hospitals and civilian infrastructure. That's a huge issue and you want to know what to advise to your minister, which particular humanitarian assistance you might want to send to Ukraine and so on and so forth. So starting from psychological support to the victims of uh, sexual violence to nuclear safety and security, which is now also a very hot issue because when Russians mine uh, the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, and that is the biggest European NPP, it's not only about energy blackmail anymore, it's about physical nuclear safety and security. And if it blows up and something happens, that would be something like 10 times as big as Chernobyl was in 1986. So that's huge. And that also uh, demands some knowledge in nuclear energy, not only in political science. So there are all those different aspects there. Mm -hmm. And so many layers of things that we don't think of. Um, that's for sure. Um, Evgenia Gaber joins us from Ottawa. She's from Odessa. And uh, here's the photo. The photo today on the, the biggest news, um, you know, as we celebrate, you know, Good News Tuesday, and I, I can't believe that this is one of those things that we say is good news, but there has been what appears to be massive retaliation uh, by Ukraine on Russia in, in, in uh, okay, politics, in 
all of this, nobody has really said, by the way, the Ukrainian military did this. Um, but I've asked for your insight on that, too. The photo on the BBC is Crimea beachgoers run after airfield explosion. And the photo is cabanas and cabins and beachwear and laid back beach time, which is the sort of annexed disputed area of Crimea. Everyone's laid back having a good time. Oh, by the way, here's your harsh reminder. This is a war. Um, what happened and what, what are you hearing from from everyone at home? Well, in Ukraine, we would uh, make joke that someone might be just smoking there. And because it's so hot, it might have exploded. (laughs) But you know what? In all fairness, if anybody was going to screw something like that up, it wouldn't surprise me. And maybe this is my Hollywood look on the Russian military. But in fairness, if anybody was going to do that, um, that, that's kind of what we've seen. Oh, no. Sometimes it's Bollywood. Sometimes it's Hollywood. But you see all those crazy things happening in Russian military, which helps you. Ukrainians a lot. So we're really grateful for all corruption they used to have in the army, because otherwise they would have been way much stronger than they are now. But talking about Crimea, it's not because uh, we want people not to go to the beaches or have this relaxed time, but that's because uh, those bases are the main logistical support for Russian operations in Ukraine now. So from uh, the occupied Crimea, which they have turned from a touristic place to a military base, like heavily militarized area, even with nuclear allegedly with nuclear weapons there, but with definitely conventional weapons, they would use those military bases to attack different places in Ukraine, including Odessa, where I come from. So sometimes when you are just sleeping, uh, 2 a.m., 3 a.m., you would get all those alerts about um, new air raids coming. Sometimes they would say it's from submarines in the Black Sea. Sometimes it's from the occupied Crimea and all those uh, multi-launch rocket systems. And sometimes that would be from the aircraft from the uh, Crimean airports. So because we're now preparing for this counter-offensive in the southern uh, parts of Ukraine, particularly in this Kherson region, which is also important, it's an agricultural area, and there are many seaports there, it's important to cut logistical supplies from the territories which are occupied by Russians. And of course, Crimea is uh, one of the main points. So the more we get uh, assistance, weapons and arms from the West, the more we can use them in a very effective and efficient way to stop Russian war on Ukrainian civilians and actually a genocidal war because, you know, it has been uh, recognized as a genocide by Canadian parliament as well. So back in June, um, there became a uh, sort of a leader of the the Crimea force, according to Russia, after there was some firing on Black Sea oil drilling platforms uh, in in and around there. So I mean, this is this is a big escalation. If this was, I'm trying to be trying to be blank canvas on this. <laughs> if this was a uh, a direct attack with technology from Ukraine, which has become readily apparent with drones, rockets, all of those things, that um, this is a dramatic escalation, which must be terrifying when you think about it, because everybody knows this has got to get worse before it gets better, because clearly, otherwise, Russia just keeps walking, right? So it's got to get worse before it gets better. But this is this could be a big escalation of getting worse before it gets better. Uh, 
I don't think there can be any further escalation apart from what we have now, because Russia has used all types of weapons against Ukrainians, including those which are banned by the Geneva Convention, so cluster bombs, everything there. The only thing that they have not used so far are obviously nukes, and I don't really think they are going to use them. But the obvious reality is that if you want to have peace, especially sustainable peace, you first want to have a counteroffensive and war, unfortunately, because appeasement has never worked so far. It's just not how things work for Russia, uh, which can stop only if it is stopped. And all nice initiatives and negotiations, including the grain deal brokered by the United Nations and Turkey, it has become possible not only because of the diplomatic efforts and negotiations, but because before that, we got some nice arms supplies from the West, and then we liberated the Snake Island, and then we liberated the western northern part of the Black Sea Basin from the Russian control. And that's how we made it sure that Russians are not going to attack our ships and vessels. And afterwards, they got to the table of negotiations and we got this grain deal. So if you want to have meaningful negotiations with Russians, you first want to be sure that you have advantages on the battlefield. And again, I think it's important to emphasize here, Ukrainians do not want war. Ukrainians are the people, like the most peaceful people I have ever known. They are living in their own country. They are focused on their day-to-day -day business, and they don't want to have war because it's happening in Ukraine on our soil, and our people are being killed. But there is just no other way to do that, because if you freeze the situation as it is now, being afraid of escalation, not willing to pay uh, high prices for oil and gasoline or something else, then you will have another attack, way wider, more large-scale attack in a couple of uh, years or even months. So the only way to have this sustainable peace is actually to show Russia that there is no chances for Moscow to get... Um, to, just to get away with what it has now. Uh, you have to stop it. And for that, we need weapons, more weapons, sooner, and in a way that would be meaningful for changing situation on the ground. Not drip, 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 drip like this, but having large amounts, large supplies in a moment. Because if you compare, uh, as one friend of mine put it, if you can compare a situation when you take one stone at a time, throw it at someone, and then a day passes and then you throw another stone, it does not really help. But if you have 10 stones thrown at a time, this how things can be changed. So for that, that's why we are asking for more military assistance and that's why we are not afraid of escalation. We want to have it now, this counteroffensive, just so that everyone would be just happy and living their peaceful lives tomorrow. Uh, the grain that you talk about, getting the grain out, there has been another shipment that is left. This is good news. There's still lots left. There's uh, fantastic, and I want to put this into context, um, 25 million tons, excuse me, 20 million tons of grain meant for export are stuck in Ukraine currently after all this stuff has happened. After this year's harvest, they figured that could rise to 75 million tons after um, just this summer. And put that into context, quick search of Canada, is 23 million tons on average that it that Canada has been producing. Call it 25, round it up, you know, just for some context. So 
Ukraine's looking to double that in one year for stuff that needs to leave. I mean, th this is a big impact. It's a big impact on the economy, obviously, the people who want the grain and all of that stuff. I wanted to put that into context. But there is some good news, though. It is starting to move. Yeah, it is starting to move, which is obviously good news. It's good news for Ukraine. It's good news for the people of the global south, uh, for people in the Middle East and in the African countries. And one of the reasons why Ukraine actually agreed on this grain deal, because we also care about the global food crisis and uh, being responsible uh, unlike some other countries, we really want to make sure that uh, there is no food shortage in uh, in the developing countries in particular. But still, it's too early to celebrate that because it's not that we don't have uh, any other problems anymore. Uh, mm -hmm. First, because Russians have already uh, untapped their grain potential and the um, precondition for having this grain deal was actually facilitation of supplies of the Russian grain and fertilizers to the world markets. And that would be okay for us because obviously world markets have to get more fertilizers and more um, food supplies. But because Russians are now trying to put political pressure on many governments in Africa and in the Middle East so that they would uh, cancel their contracts with Ukraine and buy grain from Russia. And that is what happened, for example, in Egypt. They canceled huge, like multi-million, hundreds of millions of dollars contract there after a visit of uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov to Africa saying that they do not need Ukrainian grain anymore. Plus, of course, the cost of Ukrainian grain are now um, getting higher and higher because the insurance costs are also quite high because no one would actually want to uh, provide yeah. insurance to those ships going in the area of open heart conflict. So that's crazy. And that's still not a done deal. It's just a ray of hope, but right. still there is a way to go there. I wouldn't want to be on those boats. My goodness. Um, like those workers. Okay. Who takes Ukraine's grains? Uh, Ukrainian wheat importers, Egypt, Indonesia, Bangladesh, Turkey, Yemen, Philippines, Morocco, Tunisia, Libya, and Ethiopia, to name the top few from 2021. Anything else, Evgenia, that we need to know before we go here? I, you know, I mean, I try to interpret all of the info, but you're from there. Plus that whole PhD thing that comes in handy with, uh, with, uh, that education that you have in the experience. And the network of people that that do your kind of work, you guys are a tight knit bunch. So, um, what what else do I need to know? What can we leave everybody with that puts it right into Canadians' laps that that Canadians need to know? Uh, that would probably be uh, just an invitation to visit Ukraine after the war is over, because I don't want Ukraine to be associated all with war and corruption and armed supplies and some problem that we have. Unfortunately, because of this um, really tough history that we have, all history of genocides and deportation of indigenous people and uh, Holodomors, this uh, famine which was artificially created by the Stalin regime. Very often when we talk about Ukraine, we're talking in these um, sad uh, disaster narratives. Ukraine is a huge country. It's a very beautiful country with so beautiful people there. And because we are also celebrating today the International Day of the uh, Indigenous People, 
uh, I think it's important to know that Ukraine is a, a liberal democratic country with so many different cultures, so many different tastes, so many different indigenous people living there, like Crimean Tatars and Karaims and uh, all others. It would be just nice to come and explore a bit of us. But for that, we first need victory and then we need peace and then uh, we are ready to welcome our Canadian friends in a peaceful and prosperous Ukraine. I look forward to that. I mean, you had me at come for the vodka, but okay. The rest of it sounds beautiful too. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. Good luck with your uh, speaking and your teaching and enjoying the rest of the, uh, the month of August uh, in Ottawa where you're doing your work. Thanks so much. Thank you. This is the Shift Podcast. Are you okay with excavators, the Tonka yeah, tools? Yeah, construction equipment's pretty cool. I, I hated the TV show Bob the Builder when I was a kid. Oh, like, that was my brother loved. Yeah, I hated it. But uh, I always, uh, I always like enjoy watching them work. Stupid. <laughs> yeah, I was stupid. I always enjoy watching construction workers like do their job because it's something I would never do. Uh, and they do it so well. And it's also like, it's not as simple as just like big crane destroy things. There's so much math and calculation they have to do to make sure that everything works. And uh, it's, yeah, it's pretty neat. I drove one. I drove a big Tonka truck up at Suncorp. When you Really? Oh. 240 ton truck. Yep. Was it was before fun? the 300s came out, but really it was um, it was fantastic. It was huge, and let me tell you, they would do they would we had scales on it so we could tell how much material was in it, and so they would test on how heavy they could carry. Let me tell you, on a rainy day with two flat tires, 400 tons of material downhill on limestone, slipping sideways. Oh, I should get the old knuckles white. Let me tell you. <laughs> let me tell you. Oh yeah. Um, I did realize how much I loved excavators. All the tools, machines of construction, based on my Instagram feed, you know, when you search that feed, mm -hmm. because I get constantly fed construction equipment because I love to watch it. So tools of construction, tools of demolition. A man in Salt Lake City decided he wanted to have some fun. Police say the man stole an excavator, drove nearly a mile down the street, took him three days, and I'm kidding, and proceeded to destroy a grocery store parking lot. Why? I don't know. Salt Lake police say this happened about noon. They say the excavator originally was running at a job site at 900 South, 300 West. Police say a man jumped in, took off, traveling nearly a mile before arriving at Smith's. Police say the man then started digging up the ground, causing significant damage. A crowd of people witnessed it. They were able to keep the man here until police showed up and arrested him. This was very unusual. We're fortunate that there were no crashes. No one was injured. Once the person got to the parking lot and was just kind of swinging the front loader around, uh, a lot of community members called 911 wondering what was going on here. Uh-huh. That's from CBS2. Damage is extensive. The man was booked into Salt Lake City County Metro Jail on suspicion of felony theft and felony criminal mischief. Thankfully, nobody got hurt. But come on, be honest. You, you wish you could, though, right? Like jump in a track hoe, drive oh, it down yeah. the road, dig some holes. Sounds like, sounds like so much so fun. fun. I would probably blast Def Leppard while doing something like that. Right? It, that sounds awesome. <laughs> okay. Um, well, if you're going to say it that way, then we probably should just imagine what that's like, right? Mm -hmm. 
I think so. Mm, what's the best one that's going to get this started, I would imagine? If you're doing Def Leppard, it's yeah, Photograph. It's Photograph. Photograph? Is it? Photograph. That's the, oh yeah. Close your eyes. Unless you're actually driving. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like totally. If you're going to drive a track hoe and you're going to do that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Right? That's pretty good. See? There you go. There's the answer. That's how you get through it. Amazing. Are you okay with telescopes? Yeah, they're neat. Yeah. Every time I try to use one, I just, I don't see anything. I clearly just can't get it to work. Also, I'm like practically blind. So when I take the glasses off, I can't see anything anyways. So I have to be wearing contacts. And yeah, I've never successfully like pointed a telescope at a, up at a star and seen something. I would love mm. to, but it's never worked anytime I've tried it. Mm. I like it when you go on vacation, like in Hawaii and places like that. And there's a guy in the street corner and for like five bucks or two bucks, he'll let you look at Saturn or something the big. Right. Oh, and, cool. See, but those people, they have it focused at something. Because me, if you have a telescope and you don't know what it is, you're kind of just looking around the darkness, mm-hmm. right? Like it's kind of the same thing over and over again, I guess. Well, the James Webb telescope has been taking some amazing pictures. Now, James, Mr. Webb cheats because he's already in space. So we love to share these beautiful photos across the internet, but one scientist is getting a bit of flack after he shared a photo of a planet that turned out to def- definitely not be a planet. It feels great. It smells amazing. Actually, something smells fishy. Turns out a famous French physicist named Etienne Klein posted the image saying it was taken by the Webb telescope, a photo of Proxima Centauri, the closest star to the sun. Most of his Twitter followers got the joke. But it was actually chorizo, pork sausage. Of course, the internet responded by grinding out more sausage images, passing them off as the view from another angle or another planet orbiting the original sausage star. But some didn't appreciate mixing astronomy and gastronomy. Just give it a good massage. Engage with your food. The esteemed physicist engaged with his critics, apologizing and calling the photo a form of amusement, but urging people to be cautious about accepting eloquent images at face value. Uh, that's my uh, dream girl, CNN's Jeannie Moss. Last week, Klein posted a photo that was really taken from the James Webb Space Telescope, and he promised it was real this time. Yes, it was. And if you don't know chorizo, maybe that's not your thing. Imagine a very thin slice of pepperoni for your pizza, similar. And that's what he claimed was the planet, was the slice of the the pepperoni, like the chorizo, side by side. And it was just a slice of meat. Oh, Internet, you never fail us. Are you, oh, wait a second. I guess we're not okay with this. Let's just hit this one right off the top. Hey, give me one of those famous giant beers I heard so much about. Something wrong, Yank? No, it's pretty big, I guess. I'll just have a cup of coffee. Bear it is. No, I said coffee. Beer? Coffee. Beer. C-O-B. 
That's it. I was waiting for more. <laughs> Are you okay with beer? Yes, sir. Oh, beer's great. You know what? I've been trying the sours more lately, and uh, I, I found one I actually like because it tastes like blue raspberry Slurpee. It's a beer that tastes like a blue raspberry Slurpee. But that's and usually not I don't beer, like the sweet beers. But it, it is like technically those... a beer. But it's like those, like a Rattler is as far as you can go. But it's like these, these uh, what are these, um, Coors Light Creamsicle. No, like, it, but that's, those are like vodka. Not... Those, those like have malt in it. This is like a full on properly brewed sour is... beer. So that's, that's why I'm okay beer. with that particular kind of beer. But I also enjoy regular beer. My favorite beer is called Bose Lug Tread. It, you can only basically buy in Ontario and I miss it immensely. Bose what? Bose lug tread, like the treads that are on tractors. Oh. Yeah. A cold beer on a hot day is a magical thing, without a doubt. On Friday, it was International Beer Day, so of course, something like this would happen on International Beer Day. A truck full of beer spilled its load all over the Mary Hill Bypass this morning. Take a look at this. Workers carefully cleaned up the debris by hand, piling six packs of Coors Light onto the concrete divider. A tractor trailer carrying pallets of golden suds somehow broke apart and lost its load. No word on how it happened, but I'm sure the driver's ego is a little bruised. The trailer appears to have simply collapsed right in the middle, ripping open the front and causing cans of Coors Light to spill into that right lane. Traffic was down to a single lane. Everyone is said to be okay, which we are happy to report. Oh, happy. That's pretty good. Um, yeah, people from the highway clamored around, drank all of the Coors Light and got a slight buzz. Uh, it's a pretty spectacular image, though. The trailer's literally split open. You can see beer cans all over the place. Uh, they kind of like shotgunning beers spinning all over. Nobody was injured. Uh, there were some hearts broken. The spirit bill was Coors Light. No harm, no foul. <laughs> I want to make jokes, though. Like, nobody ran to take the beers because it was Coors well, that Light. Was, or... That's why I wrote it that way. It's because it's Coors Oh, was Light. it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's um, why I wrote but... it. Coors Light, though, is tolerable if it is oh, ice. Ice, ice cold. cold. If it is Not tolerable. Like... It's all right. I no like very cold refreshing. on a very hot day. It it is a mm -hmm. refreshing beer, which is clearly yeah. what it's do. But it's kind of like when you decide to order Pabst Blue at a restaurant, and you get it on tap, and the first couple sips are actually pretty good, and then it warms up, and then you were you just why you're wrong, Ryan? Have I taught you nothing? Why would you order Pabst Blue at a restaurant? Because it's cheap. That's more like you order it from the hot dog truck. It's, yeah, perhaps blue and hot dogs do go like hand in hand. There's no, de there's no, there's no like debate about that. Right. Oh man, you know exactly what you're talking about. So good. Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show, and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.